If you have your Bible, will you turn with me to John chapter 21? John 21. I want to read a a different passage of Scripture today as we work towards the Lord's Supper. It's a story of God's provision. And it will be mentioned just slightly on the tail end of the sermon. But we're going to be in John 21 for the Scripture reading and then we'll talk about the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. Um, Just in case I yell or shout in the Spirit or something, there is a hornet or something flying around here. Uh, Whizzed by my... Donnie got it. Amen. Praise the Lord. That is Donnie's uh, ministry. He is chief hornet swatter here at the church. You just stood for the reading of Deuteronomy 6, so I'll allow you to sit for the reading of John 21. It's a story that you've probably heard many times before, but as I said, it's a story of God's provision. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. So they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. You've been there? I have been there every time I've been fishing. Which is like three times in my life. Verse 4. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Will you bow with me? Father, this passage of Scripture teaches us of a God who gives sufficient and abundant gifts. You provide for us. And very often, as we see throughout the narrative of the New Testament, you give and give and give and give. So we hear today gathered around the table, we understand that this is more than a sufficient offering to us. But it is overflowing. Bless us, Lord. Help now as I preach. Give your people understanding. Give us ears to hear. 
and hearts to listen to the word of God. It's in your holy and precious name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, have you ever been in a thrust into culture shock before? Uh, some of you have traveled abroad and you have been thrown headlong into another way of living. And you know that that is a, a very interesting way of, of life. You're hit with the different kinds of foods, the smells, the customs, the dress, the language. We were talking about a few of those last night with a, a group that I was having dinner with. It can be overwhelming at times. In fact, I recently had a conversation with a missionary uh, who had just come back to the States to help raise support so that he could get back to his place of service. And they had been so entrenched in their particular country that they're ministering in that they were having a difficult time assimilating back into American culture. Everything from the English language, the interactions, even the placement of a light switch. Who knew that it was different throughout the world? It was just so much for him to handle that he told me it took him weeks, weeks of just living in a fog. And he said, honestly, I slept a ton because I was so overwhelmed with it all. I imagine that can probably be like what it is for some who are new to attending church. We talked about this a little last week, but every church, like every family, has its own culture, what we wear, how we talk, how we act, what songs we know and what songs we don't know. <laughs> that was a new one for me, but it was a good one. Just last week, I had two conversations with individuals who were asking about visiting our church, and they, they asked, you know, what do people wear at your church? It's all part of the, the culture. You throw in style of music, as I said, into a church experience, and very often, those who are not regular attenders can really go through culture shock if it's not what they're used to. So last week, I, I talked with you about the ordinance of baptism and, and how if you were just dropped into the middle of a Christian worship service without any kind of explanation about what was going on or what was being done, and you were to see two fully clothed individuals standing in water in front of the church, and then one raising his hand and plunging the other one down, and everybody you know, celebrating and clapping hands and saying amen when he brings them back up, That'd be a little weird if you had never seen it before. So we talked about baptism last week, its example, its symbolism, and its urge for us to live in a particular way. Well, the Lord's Supper is similar in that regard, and that if you are just plopped down here today without any preconceived notion about what we will do this morning, it would be strange. Here at New Hope, we we gather together four times a year with the intent purpose of taking the Lord's Supper. And if you have never taken communion, or if perhaps you have grown up in a tradition different from ours, it may seem a little weird. You might have, some few, you might have a few questions. The first that you might ask would be, where's the supper? <laughs> you call this the Lord's Supper, so where's the supper? We call it Lord's Supper, and in just a moment, we will pass around plates with tiny crackers and thimblefuls of grape juice, and I think you'd find that they are having a bigger snack in the nursery this morning than what we will be having. It's true that it seems that the early church most often partook of the Lord's Supper surrounding, or actually on the tail end of actually sharing a meal together 
Uh, a large chunk of the, first, of the first book to the Corinthian church was written uh, to talk about that. The problem there was that too often the people in the Corinthian church were only attending the service for the actual physical food instead of the spiritual food. And so that practice of actually having a meal has kind of fallen by the wayside because of Paul's directions to, if you've come to eat, stay at home. <laughs> eat at home. It'd be great to reinstate that sometime, honestly. That we actually share a meal and then we kind of push back from the table and we partake in the Lord's Supper. We won't do that today. We're under, un, we're under no such mandate in all of Scripture to do that. But sometimes that would be good to do. The smallness of the elements, the small cracker, the small bread, the little bit of juice or wine that you get, the fruit of the vine, is due in large part to the symbolic nature of what we do here around the table. This isn't supposed to be a supper in and of itself, but it's meant to remind us of a particular meal that Jesus shared with His disciples. Not the one that we read of in John 21. Some call it the Last Supper. That last meal that Jesus shared with His disciples before the cross. I dislike that because honestly, every time I take communion, my heart and my mind, they fly to another great supper as Brother Todd mentioned in his prayer that we are told about in Scripture where all the saints will gather around the table and we will dine with Christ. The marriage supper of the Lamb. But the Lord's Supper... It does that. It, it calls us to take a look back and forward at the same time. It harkens all the way back to the history of the Passover in the book of Exodus. Perhaps you have some memory of that where the Lord told the enslaved Hebrew children to pack their bags, prepare a meal, and eat that supper standing with your shoes tied and belt around your waist and bag over your shoulder, ready to leave the bondage of Egypt and head to the promised land. We look back at that. But the Lord's Supper also takes us to another historical event. That night that Jesus was betrayed at the meal of the Passover, Jesus called an audible. And instead of, instead of going through the normal Jewish Seder, Passover meal, He took the bread and He broke it uncharacteristically and said, this is My body. It's been broken for you. And he poured the wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Take and eat. Take and drink. And all of the disciples around the table, they ate and they drank as a symbolic act of their partaking in the life of Christ as we will do in just a moment. It looks forward to, as I said earlier, that marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. It speaks of a future historical event that is just as sure to happen as all past historical events. With John the Revelator in the Spirit, Revelator in the Spirit, he writes, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is this righteous acts of the saints. I remember hearing Brother Barker read that passage once. And he closed his Bible. And he simply said, 
I aim to be there. And I do too. But what we do here this morning is so much more than a historical reenactment. We haven't donned the robes of the disciples. We're not trying to go back to the first century here. It's a whole lot more than just looking to the future, too, in a prophetic sense. The Lord's Supper has real relevance to each of us today because more than it looking back into history or forward into prophecy, it calls us to look within in a very special way. You see, time after time throughout the New Testament, whenever you read communion taking place in the church, there is always a plea to search your heart. In the Gospels, at that Last Supper meal that I mentioned earlier, Jesus shared with His disciples before His arrest, and the Lord told them, all of them, that they would each either betray or flee from Him. And there was a lot of soul-searching around the table as each of them asked each other and some even asked Jesus, is it I? Is it I, Lord? In the epistles, Paul warns the negligent and partying Corinthian church in verse 28 of chapter 11 that let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment, condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Paul goes on and says, for this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep or many have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not need to, we would not be judged. All of those soul-searching warnings hint at the fact that what we will do in just a moment is so much more than only symbolic. It is symbolic, but it's more than symbolic. I would never take it so far as the Roman Catholic Church is teaching that the bread and wine actually turn into the body and blood of Christ. Nor do I agree with our Lutheran brothers who teach that it spiritually transforms into His body and blood. But I believe that Scripture teaches that there is something unifying going on when the body of Christ, the church, partakes in the symbolic body and blood of Christ. The bread fruit of the vine. That explains why Paul is so dogmatic and diligent to the Corinthian church to not take this time lightly. He even points out that some in their congregation had eaten and drunk unworthily, drinking judgment to themselves. Another way to say that is poisoning themselves to the point that many were sick and just as many had actually died. What does it mean to eat and drink unworthily then? How can I avoid making light of this? Well, if we were about to partake in something so serious, we ought to know what it means to drink unworthily. It, it seems as though the idea is that some were taking it falsely. They didn't have a true relationship with Christ. They were going through the motions. They were going with the flow. There was a meal there. So possibly, they were even there for their own social advancement. Whatever reason possible, 
they ate of the bread and they drank of the juice because everyone else in the church was doing it. They were lying about being a Christian. But it seems as just as many that were taking it that way, it seems as many were taking it nonchalantly. Knocking back the wine, chowing down on the bread. And in doing this, they were inadvertently or intentionally, I don't know, making light of the sacrifice of our Lord. In addition to those faking it and those making light of it, it seems as though there were some who were partaking in the Lord's Supper with glaring, known, unconfessed sin. I want you to hear me on this. None of us are perfect. If you came looking for a perfect church, you are disappointed. None of us are perfect. In fact, Paul called himself the chief of sinners. By the way, that's not past tense, that's present tense. But the life of a Christian is one of confession and repentance. I sin. The Spirit convicts me of sin. He always will, Christian. He always will. And then... 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not about perfection. This is about confession. So when was the last time, Christian? When was the last time that you asked forgiveness from our Lord? When was the last time that you confessed of sin. You copped to it. You agreed. That's what confess means. To agree with something. When I did this, it was sin. And then you repented of it. You turned from that sin. When was the last time? Well, if we are going to make sure that we do not eat and drink judgment to ourselves, not discerning the Lord's body, we need to be careful of this and we ought to heed the words of the Apostle Paul to examine ourselves. That we are truly in the faith. That we are taking this seriously. And we are living a life of repentance. That's why every time we take the Lord's Supper, I, I offer a few minutes of total quiet. Time for us to pray. Silence. I, I will... On the front end, say this. I don't know that I could say that I've gotten flack for our moments of quiet here during the Lord's Supper. But I have had a few tell me that it's just awkward. And I get that. We're not a people given to quiet. I wish we were, but we're not. We live in a world where corporate silence is no more. Undoubtedly, a phone is going to ring even in the midst of the most somber occasion. But even still, I ask that you lean into the silence, that you spend a few minutes, I'll keep the clock, you don't have to pay attention to that, that you, for just a few minutes this morning, in quiet prayer, ask the Lord to search your heart. Father, we come to you this morning. Broken. Empty needing you. Every single one of us have sinned this week.
Every single one. And none of us are worthy of our own accord to partake in the Lord's Supper. Father, we do not do so in our own merit. But we do because of a good and gracious, forgiving God whose mercies are new every morning. And His faithfulness is to all generations. Father, I pray that during our time of prayer this morning, that serious soul-searching business has been done. We want all to partake in the Lord's Supper, but we want all to partake in a worthy manner, confessing and repenting, living, believing in you, with the sobriety of understanding what we do here today. We thank you for gathering us around your table. We ask that you'll bless in your precious and holy name, I pray, Jesus. Amen. Before I call our deacons this morning to serve, there are two aspects of the Lord's Supper that struck me this week in my study. And I don't know that I'd ever seen them this way before. Number one, the Lord's Supper is made for sustenance. The Lord's Supper is made for sustenance. I don't think it's a coincidence that the medium through which the Lord wanted to show His sacrifice is a meal. And what is a meal for but for sustaining life? All throughout Scripture, the Lord provided for His people. He does so in the garden. He does so in the wilderness, in Canaan, in the courts of Babylon, and then ultimately at Calvary, He provided for us. He is the manna. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the vine. The Lord's Supper is given to us. It's made for sustenance. Sabidi Anwibwele's small book on the Lord's Supper underlines and highlights this biblical thought. He writes, The Lord's Supper belongs to the weak Christian. No one comes to the table in an unblemished worthiness or undiminished strength. We come to the table in need. We come to the table fresh from battles with sin, discouragement, unbelief in the world. We need to be fed again. We need to receive the sustenance that Christ affords. By faith, we receive the nourishment we need as as we imbibe the benefits of Jesus' atoning work for sinners and weaklings. That phrase, the Lord's Supper belongs to the weak Christian, has rung in my mind. There are no super-Christians here. None perfect. In fact, if you come full to the table of the Lord's Supper, you are full of your own self-righteousness and you need to excuse yourself from partaking in the meal. This is not a potluck where you can bring anything to make it better. 
your righteousness, my righteousness, is as filthy rags. And so when we come full with ourselves and we throw that on the table, we are putrefying the sacrifice of Christ. The Lord sustains His people. So don't come full. Don't come strong. There is nothing but judgment in this Lord's Supper for you if you do. But if you come weak and if you come wanting, you will be filled. The Lord's Supper is sustenance. Just look at the the Gospel accounts when Jesus fed His people. Remember the wedding feast in John 2? The wine had run out. Shame and embarrassment reigned. But then Christ stepped in and the good wine flowed. Look at the feeding of the 5,000 men. Who would have thought that five loaves, two small fish could have fed so many, but they took up 12 baskets full of leftovers. Remember Peter that we read about earlier fishing after the resurrection in John 21? He took... Six of the other disciples with them. They fished all night. Didn't catch a single fish. Christ showed up on shore. Tells them to cast their nets on the starboard. And they hauled in 153 large fish up on the beach. Plus, when they finally pulled the net out of the water, they looked over and saw that Jesus already had some fish that He was cooking. He didn't need what they brought, but He provided for them. What am I trying to get at? The Lord always provides sustenance and then a little extra. And that's what brings me to the second aspect of the Lord's Supper, which I had never thought about before. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is made for expansion. There is always another table. There is always another seat at the table. When the Lord provides, it's always for our own spiritual sustenance and to give us energy to take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. The heart of the Lord's Supper is to bring more in. Make more room for another around the table. And this is why Paul writes in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. We don't just proclaim the Lord's death and return to ourselves, as valuable as that is. We leave this place and we proclaim it to all that we might come in contact with. So we come to the table Empty, ready to be filled. And we will leave in just a moment filled to overflowing with the Gospel. Ready to compel others to come in. Not only is this seen, this whole idea of God's provision seen throughout Scripture, but in the oldest ancient text outside of the Bible. It's a work called the Didache or the Teachings. It's the oldest, it's the small, it's the oldest Christian text outside of the Bible. It's this small pamphlet-like church manual. The most recent scholarly work puts it around the end of the first century. Even the most antagonistic historians, liberal historians, they say it's early 200s. It's not on par with Scripture, but it gives us a beautiful look into the early church's view of the Lord's Supper. And there, in these ancient pages, there's written this prayer concerning the church's taking communion. And look how they viewed the coming and eating and then leaving. They say, even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, an allusion to the feeding of the 5,000 and collection of the leftovers, even so, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom for yours is the glory and the power 
through Jesus Christ forever. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.